One of the amazing things about uh, Western culture today, I think, is that we have available most of the world's religions at our fingertips through bookstores, through visits from teachers, through friends who have practiced in that tradition. Just reading through all the interview sheets on this retreat, I think we have most major schools of Buddhism represented, quite a bit of Hinduism, and very little Christianity or Judaism perhaps, but a little bit here and there. So you all reflect that um, multi-religious strain. And it's rare that a practitioner in the West today has practiced only with one teacher or in one particular lineage. So I find it very awakening that we're subject to all these different influences. It hasn't been like that in Asia for a very long time, probably for over a thousand years. Uh, since the schools have met and mingled in the way that they're doing now in the West. It's going to be very interesting to see what comes out of this meeting. It's going to be a long evolution, obviously, because it's not just the meeting of the different Buddhist schools and Hinduism, but also Western psychology is, is part of the mix. So it's a wonderful opportunity, and at, some, at times I think it's also our curse as Westerners because we hear so many things, we're drawn in so many different ways, sometimes we don't take the opportunity to go really deeply in one school. But um, we gain a lot, I think, from hearing the different schools that we tune into. So the same was true for me. I started my interest in Buddhism in college by reading Zen. I then discovered uh, Vipassana about uh, four years after I got out of college. and. Uh, practiced that for about 20 years before I met Sonny Rinpoche on his first retreat in California in 1993. And I, I loved his teachings from the very beginning. Sometimes he would be like a playful 26-year-old, which I think is what he was then. I'd be walking down the hallway and maybe I looked a little too somber and he'd reach out and tickle me in the stomach <laughs> to make me lighten up. And then he'd sit up on the podium and the words that came were like a, a wise old sage. The Dharma was so pure and elegant. So I, I really loved uh, his teachings from the beginning, but it was a little bit of a culture shift, I have to say. I'd spent you know, 20 years getting steeped in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. I met Rinpoche and two days later I was chanting hundred-syllable mantras in Sanskrit to this golden-skinned deity who was primordially enlightened beyond time and space. <laughs> now that created a little bit of uh, cognitive dissonance. And so, you know, I was like, well, what's going on here? Are these the same religion? Are we even in the same school at all? And as I tuned into Rinpoche's teachings, I began to realize there was a lot more than just Dzogchen in what he was sharing with us. And you can hear that in uh, the talks today. He made quite a bit of mention of uh, very basic concepts like the Four Noble Truths and karma and mindfulness, basically the, the Theravadan kind of foundation. And then he moved on to other topics that are connected with the Mahayana, the topics of emptiness, bodhicitta, and compassion. And then he just touched or alluded to some Vajrayana teachings, the Dzogpa Chenpo, which we'll uh, 
start talking about tomorrow, uh, the allusion to the mandala practice and tantric practices. So he touched on all three strains today. And as I came to look into how this all fit together, I understood what uh, everyone has always talked about, that the Theravada teachings form the foundation, the Mahayana teachings are layered on top of that, and the Vajrayana on top of that. And you'll hear that history in his teaching. So I became very curious to understand how this had all come about and how it all got put together. And it led me to uh, study uh, and then touch on the themes that I want to talk about today and tomorrow, which are how did we get from the death of the Buddha, the Buddha's Parinirvana, to the origination of Dzogchen? There's about a 1,300-year span of history there as Buddhism evolved. How did that happen? What were the steps? What were the schools? What were the stages? And what I found as I started to look into this, uh, one, I was completely wrapped with the history of it because I found that the things that people were arguing about 2,000 years ago are the same things we're arguing about today. If you notice uh, uh, discussions, heated discussions, sometimes debates among different schools of Buddhism today, I can almost guarantee you that they have gone on in the distant past as well. I mentioned this at one of our Spirit Rock teacher meetings, and Deborah, who's here on this retreat, said to me, yeah, and probably by the same people. <laughs> so here we are, continuing the discussion that we may all have begun a thousand or two years ago. So I, f I found that I was um, very drawn to the study of our Dharma ancestors and felt a lineage connection to them that I'd never felt with my genetic ancestors. My family of Armstrongs came somewhere out of the border area of England and Scotland, and it's rumored that they were chased out of that area for sheep stealing, but <laughs> I don't know about that. Ended up in America, and that history never interested me very much. But when I heard about the debates between the Madhyamaka school and the Chittamatra school and the early Vinaya disagreements, that was a lineage I could really feel in my bones. So this is some of the kind of adventure that I want to share with you tonight, not just as dry historical fact, but because I think it sheds a lot of light on where we are in the West today and the kinds of issues that uh, challenge us and stretch us as we open to the different views and the different schools that are alive in, in Buddhism today. One of the frames that I'd like to put on this um, is that I believe that uh, we have a great opportunity to hold these different philosophical views in a new light. Apart from the sectarianism of the past, that we can find common ground in our understanding of them. And to frame that, I'd like to read a quotation of the Buddha from the Sutta Nipata, one of the early texts in the Pali Canon. This I do now declare. After investigation, there is nothing among all the views that such a one as I would embrace. Seeing misery in philosophical views without adopting any of them, 
and searching for truth, I discovered inner peace. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions wander about in the world annoying people. (laughs) So let's hope that we can refrain from annoying one another and use our diversity of understandings to enrich our our practice and our approach to practice. Another amazing aspect to me about the history of Buddhism as I uh, started to discover it was its reach. At one time or another, Buddhism covered almost all of what today we call Asia. It began in northern India along the Ganges Valley and in not too many hundred years spread throughout India. It migrated west into Pakistan and Afghanistan. And you probably know that it was in Afghanistan from the fact that those, remember those tall standing Buddhas that were destroyed by the Taliban about seven or eight years ago? That was the sign of its reach into Afghanistan. And of course, you know, it migrated up into Tibet and China, uh, Korea and Japan. It also spread through Southeast Asia. Of course, a lot of Southeast Asia is still Buddhist today. Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, and as far as into Indonesia, where you can find the remains of that magnificent temple at Borobudur on the island of Java. It's one of the great um, Buddhist complexes in the world. So virtually the whole of Asia at one time or another was Buddhist. And now, if you look around all those parts of Asia, it's either gone or it's on the decline. It's kind, of, it's kind of sobering to realize that in places where Buddhism has been so strong in the past, its strength is now waning. And as far as I can see, about the only places where there's a real resurgence is due to Tibetan refugees, which are changing the face of, of India and finding very welcome homes in um, places like Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, and Taiwan. Otherwise, I don't know. The outlook in in, uh, Tibet is difficult. The outlook through much of Southeast Asia, uh, what hasn't been lost to communism is in danger of being lost to capitalism. Uh, So it's not not so encouraging. But the Tibetan uh, refugees are doing a a lot of great work. So let's start from the... Uh, jumping off point of the evolution of Buddhism, which is from the death of the Buddha. The scholarly estimates that I've read, and that there is some disagreement on this, but the ones I've read as a consensus, put the Buddha's death at 463 BCE. So just a word about nomenclature. I grew up using the terms BC and AD, before Christ and Anno Domini. Of course, as you get into Buddhist scholarship, you realize those are very uh, Christian-centric. So in Buddhist scholarship, the terms are called, uh, the year zero in the Western calendar is called the start of the Common Era, abbreviated CE, and before the Common Era is abbreviated BCE. So they do correspond to BC and AD, but they don't have the Christian overlay. 
463 BCE uh, was the Buddha's death and Parinirvana. And you know what happens when a charismatic founder dies? People make nice for a while and then they start arguing. So that's exactly what happened after the death of the Buddha. Actually, the Sangha got along pretty well for about a hundred years. And then there started to be reports that this group over on the East Coast was getting a little radical. It was said that they wanted to change the Vinaya, the monk's code of discipline, and allow the monks to start using money, which the original Vinaya in the Buddhist time outlawed. This group in the East rejected claims that the words of the Buddha were the only authority. And they said, no, our own inner experience is an equal authority to the words of the Buddha. And not only our own inner experience, but our rational mind, our logic, can also be an equal authority to the words of the Buddha. So news of these uh, liberal views reached back to the elders in the West, who are the more conservative group. The situation in our scene today is reversed. The West Coast is considered the left coast of our school of Buddhism. The East Coast is considered the conservative wing. But the same struggle is going on. How fast should the Dharma change as it adapts to new systems? And what should be the authority for that change? Should we throw out the written texts? And because one charismatic teacher has a strong experience and said it's really this way, should we follow that? Or to what extent should we stay congruent with tradition which has held up for 2,500 years as a firm basis for practice and understanding? So I think this is inevitable tension that's going to be in our scene, all the Buddhist scenes, for a long time that between tradition and innovation. In order to resolve the dispute, the elders in the West called for a meeting of the two groups. This was called the Second Council. To back up a little bit, the First Council happened immediately after the death of the Buddha. It said that 500 fully awakened beings were called together to decide on the true legacy of the Buddha's words. So they had one monk who recited all the rules of the monk's discipline, the Vinaya. That monk was Upali. They had another monk, Ananda, who had been the Buddha's attendant, who recited all the discourses of the Buddha that he could remember. And those became the collection of the suttas. So the Vinaya Pitaka and the Sutta Pitaka were assembled immediately after the death of the Buddha. And those became the... Uh, formal, recognized teachings. So this was about 100 years later. The Second Council was called to resolve the dispute between East and West. The dispute was not resolved. The Western uh, group could not go along with the innovations in the East. The Eastern group could not accept being uh, compelled to follow the norms of the West. So this was the first split in the Sangha. The Eastern group uh, became known as the Mahasangikas, the Great Assembly, the Great Sangha. 
The Eastern group, because they were more reverent of the past, became known as the Staviravadins. That's a Sanskrit word. The Theravada, uh, sorry, the Pali translation is Theravada. So Staviravada in Sanskrit means the elders. Theravada is the Pali, and that's what that school uh, became named by, known by, and it has continued in one form or another to the present day. So through all the splintering, altogether 18 schools got formed in this early Buddhist uh, age, early Buddhist phase, where the, the canon of the Buddha's own words was the, the foundation and the shared understanding. So the splintering continued to happen until at least 18 schools were formed. Of those 18 schools, only one remains today, and that is this school that is called the Theravadan. But some of the other schools were very um, influential and important. A lot of this has been lost to history. It's kind of sad because there have got to be a lot of great stories in here. But this tradition that I'm a part of, um, that the Vipassana school is a part of, uh, is curious in one respect, very different from the Tibetan tradition. Um, let, me, let me ask you a question, different from the Zen tradition. Could you name three Zen masters in China or Japan in sort of medieval times? Bodhidharma? Banke? Dogen? Great, we're done. There are lots, right? Hakuin and Huangpo and the list, Huineng, the list goes on and on. Zen is a very literate tradition, you know, beginning with Chan in China. Can you name three Tibetan practitioners in sort of medieval times? Milarepa, Marpa, Naropa. And you could go on and on, right? I mean, the volumes are full of names of old, old Tibetan teachers. Now, I address this specifically to the Vipassana crowd. <laughs> or Tibetans are also welcome. Can you name three Vipassana or Theravadan teachers between the death of the Buddha and, let's say, the 1800s? Buddhaghosa, excellent. Shantideva was Mahayana. One? <laughs> so, it's kind of the state of things in our history. There's not a lot recorded. Buddhaghosa is the most famous. He wrote a bunch of commentaries in the 6th century. Contemporary of his was uh, another monk named Dhammapala, and another famous Theravadan is the person who brought the religion to Sri Lanka. His name is Mahinda. You go beyond those three and it gets pretty sparse. So our tradition's not very literate. A lot of practitioners, because it's an unbroken oral lineage of practitioners going back to 463 BCE, or even further, because the Buddha was in there, but not very literate. So that's just kind of uh, how it was in our tradition. I think because there was so much emphasis on the words of the Buddha himself, later uh, writers were not, so, were not so valued. So the splitting continued, uh, continued to happen. And the development uh, continued to happen. The next kind of important development in the history of the, the Theravada uh, schools 
was the assembly of what's called the Abhidhamma. This is the third basket, the third pitaka, to the Vinaya, the Sutta Pitaka, the Abhidhamma Pitaka. If you ask a devout Buddhist in Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, how did we get the Abhidhamma? They will tell you a story like this. Abhidhamma had to be delivered uninterruptedly by the Buddha, but it was too long for any human being to receive. So the Buddha, in one rains retreat, ascended to Tusita heaven, spent the three months of the rains retreat in Tusita heaven, and delivered the entire Abhidhamma to his mother, who was residing in that heaven realm, over three months in an uninterrupted fashion. And then during that rains retreat, he projected his psychic body down to where one of his disciples, Sariputta, was staying, and every day he would give Sariputta updates. This is the part of the teaching that I gave today in Tusita Heaven, and Sariputta remembered it and assembled it during the lifetime of the Buddha. Believe that? <laughs> Western scholars say otherwise. And from from my point of view, because kind of like the Dalai Lama, I believe in scientific research more than I believe in words from some old book. If scientific research indicates that any doctrine of Buddhism is incorrect, Dalai Lama said we should toss it out. Just a funny little footnote to this. Carl Sagan was the one who asked him about this. And Carl Sagan said, um, what if we proved... He's a great astronomer. What if we prove that the doctrine of rebirth is wrong? Would you accept that? The Dalai Lama said definitely. If science proves it wrong, I I'll accept that. And then he was just still for a minute. And he turned to Carl Sagan and he said, uh, how would you prove that? <laughs> and Carl Sagan had no idea. So Western... Uh, scholars have done a lot of research in this area. It's the viewpoint that I'll be presenting tonight. There are very different viewpoints in Asia on some of these questions. So I don't want to get into arguments about who's right, the Asian tradition or the scholars. I just want to tell you what the scholars say and let you make your own decision. So the scholars say the Abhidhamma was not assembled by the death of the Buddha the first signs of its collection started to come around a hundred years after the Buddha's death. The Abhidhamma is this amazing volume. Actually, it's seven volumes in English. It analyzes in minute detail the workings of the human mind in an ordinary person and also along the path to enlightenment. It details how moments of consciousness come one after another, how the factor of perception arises, how intentions are born, how karma is generated from wholesome and unwholesome intentions, and how all of that can lead eventually to enlightenment. It's an extraordinary work that had to have been put together by a very, very still and clear mind. It is associated uh, in the lineage with the name of Sariputta, who was the Buddha's disciple foremost in wisdom, 
And whether that is as accurate or not, I don't know. Perhaps it was students of Sariputta who assembled it. But there's a, an indication about the character of Sariputta from the story of his enlightenment. He came to the Buddha at the same time as his boyhood, boyhood friend, Moggallana. They were best buddies from early years. And they turned out to be the Buddha's two chief disciples. Moggallana was the one who was foremost in psychic powers. He got the teachings completely in a week. But Sariputta was slow. It took him two weeks to become fully enlightened. And it said that the reason was that every time he had a new experience, he analyzed it completely to understand what factors of mind were there and what factors were absent and how it was able to unfold. So he had this amazingly analytical approach to his practice, and that's the spirit of the Abhidhamma. It's extremely analytical, and it maps the whole path from, let's say, a non-ego standpoint. It describes the whole thing in terms of elements that are arising and passing, considered by the Abhidhamma ultimate elements of mind and body that they called dhammas, things, little things. And these dhammas were considered irreducible. It's more or less the atomistic view of the Buddha's teachings. So these were called the ultimate. The dhammas were called the ultimate. Other uh, names for things were considered conventional or relative. Things like sentient being, uh, things like noble truth were considered conceptual or conventional. Well, I think one of the things that happened is that the Abhidhamma tried to answer questions that the Buddha had left untouched in his discourses. As you probably know, there were a lot of questions the Buddha didn't answer, such as, how long does it take from one death to the next rebirth? In the Tibetan system, the answer is roughly 49 days. In the Abhidhamma system, the answer is zero. The view put forward is that as soon as the uh, mind moment ceases in the being who's dying, in the very next mind moment, it arises anew in some being who is being conceived. So they say there is no bardo, period. The Abhidhamma, because it tries to spell out a lot of these unanswered questions, I think, ends up getting the tradition in a lot of trouble. It's interesting when you think back on what the Buddha taught and what he didn't teach. You may know there's this famous story of the handful of leaves. The Buddha's walking in a forest with a bunch of monks, and he picks up a handful of leaves from the ground that have fallen to the earth, handful of dried leaves, and he says, which is greater, O monks? the number of leaves in my hand or the leaves on all the trees in the forest. The monks are no dummies. They say, oh, Bhante, the number of leaves in all the forest is greater. And the Buddha said, uh, just so is what I know. The mind of a Buddha is like the range of all the leaves in the forest compared to what I have revealed to you. I have only revealed this handful of leaves of all that I know but this handful of leaves is enough for you to become free. So he didn't teach about what wasn't conducive to awakening. 
There were many philosophical questions he could have answered, but he chose not to because it wasn't necessary. In the Pali text, the Buddha doesn't even talk very much about what it looks like from the other shore, what the view is from the awakened mind, because he assumes it, once you get there, you'll know yourself. I don't have to tell you. All you have to know is it's the end of suffering. So the Abhidhamma becomes a focal point for disagreements, I think, because it tried to fill in areas that the Buddha had, I think, wisely left uh, unresolved. So one of these questions came up a couple of hundred years later. Actually, it was in 250 BCE, about then. And a very influential king had risen to power in India named Asoka, or Ashok in, in Sanskrit. Asoka was the first Buddhist king in India to uh, hold a wide range of the kingdom in his power. And after his conversion, he was not Buddhist by birth, but he converted from his own understanding. He became a great patron of the Dhamma, and the Dhamma flourished under his patronage. You'll see this in the history of Buddhism, where there's royal patronage, court patronage, the Dhamma flowers, nuns, monks, monasteries, nunneries are supported. When the political climate changes and that support goes away, Dharma dwindles. So there was a great flowering under Asoka. He vowed to stop making war. He had been an expansionist, conquering, warring king. He vowed to cease uh, attacking neighboring kingdoms. He outlawed animal sacrifices, which were very common in the Vedic tradition, and even tried to turn his court to more vegetarian uh, diets. And he provided liberally for the people in his society. There's a lovely teaching in the, the Digha Nikaya, one of the set of the Pali discourses, where the Buddha talks about why crime arises in a culture. And he says it arises because of poverty, because there hasn't been fair distribution of the material goods in the country. So Asoka knew that and tried to create a just and, and fair and generous society. So at the time of Ahsoka, there was another uh, split brewing. And this one was over the question of karma. So everything arises and passes, right? We know that from the teaching on impermanence. So if your past action has ceased, where are the seeds of its fruit? It's said that when we act, those, those intentions become the seeds for future results, future karmic results. Okay, where are those seeds right now? Show me your seeds. <laughs> Different schools have answered this differently. There's a later uh, evolution from the Chittimatra that tries to answer this in a different way. But a school sprang up around 200 years after the Buddha's death that tried to answer this. Their answer was, oh, the past and future aren't really gone. They actually exist here and now, along with the present. And that's how the karmic seeds and fruits uh, get carried on. The past isn't really over. This group uh, became known as the Sarvastivadins. 
and they're one of the most influential schools of the early schools of Buddhism. But the original school, the Staviravadins or the Theravadins in Pali, couldn't accept this. They said, no, impermanence is clear, it's one of the three characteristics, the Buddha said so, we reject this doctrine, and uh, the, the Sarvastivadins split off. They were influential for a number of reasons. One is this doctrine, which is quite interesting, trying to resolve the mystery of karma and how it operates. Another is they were the first school to stress the importance of the paramis. They were the ones who came up with the list of the six paramis that formed the basis for Shantideva's guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life and much of Mahayana thinking. The paramis are considered the foundation of Mahayana practice. So the Sarvastivadins were the first to enunciate that. Their canon was written in Sanskrit, not in Pali, and no complete copy survived. The only complete canon that has survived today from those, any of those early schools is the Pali canon of the Theravada school. Some of the other schools have survived in fragments, but none of them is complete. Sarvastivadins, same thing. But this is a very influential school because their power, their, their base, was in uh, the area around Kashmir. So they moved out of the, the Ganges Valley to the north and west. And this is where they became established and uh, developed practitioners and uh, teachers and monasteries and nunneries and so forth. Why is that important? Because Kashmir was the jumping off point for the Silk Route. And the movement of the Dharma into Tibet and through Tibet into China happened over the Silk Route. So what got carried to Tibet was the Sanskrit canon of the Sarvastivadins. And that's what re remains in Tibetan today. It's not a complete canon, but it has a lot of overlap. You can compare their canon to the Pali canon, there's a lot of of overlap, but it's not identical. So in the Tibetan canon, there is, the Pali canon is not part of the Tibetan canon. They, I've heard Tibetan teachers say that they have a complete inclusion of the Hinayana teachings, but what they have is this partial canon that came from the Sarvastivadins, and it's that canon that forms the Tibetans' view of what constitutes Hinayana. So, because the schools have been cut off for so many years, there's been no dialogue between the Tibetans and the Theravadins, you know, for all these years. So, they actually don't know what's in Theravadan practice or the Pali Canon. So, the label Hinayana, you may be relieved to know, doesn't apply to us. It applies to an extinct school called the Sarvastivadins. Although, of course, we shared many, uh, many philosophical views. Another interesting feature of this um, establishment in Kashmir is that this is the variety of Buddhism that uh, uh, was rooted and established in Mathura and Gandhara. And uh, Gandhara has some of the most beautiful sculpture of Buddha images that, that I know of. Um, another just interesting footnote, there were no Buddha statues until Buddhism came in contact with Greeks. It was, it was Greco-Roman sculpture 
that provided the first incentive for uh, modeling Buddha images. And this came in contact also in the West. King Menander was a Greek king who ruled over parts of that Western country. His name got polyized as Melinda. And the, the work Questions of King Melinda is a record of a dialogue, many dialogues between Melinda and this monk Nagasena from the early days. Uh, and is now part of uh, the Pali uh, commentarial works, Questions of King Melinda, a Greek king. The Sarvastivadins had their own Abhidhamma, but of course because they were Sanskrit, they called it the Abhidharma, and they got quite into it. They were big Abhidharma people. And this led to another split with a group called the Sautrantikas, Sautra is a variation, just a grammatical distinction of the word sutra, which is the Sanskrit version of sutta, which is the Pali word for discourse. So the Sautrantikas are the people who believed in the sutras, or the original words of the Buddha. And they said, we don't trust your stinking Abhidhamma. We think that you've gotten too uh, fixated on these ultimate dhammas. And we think you're taking them too uh, literally and too concretely. Basically, we think you've missed the point. By focusing too much on these minute arisings, you've missed the, the heart of awakening that is what the Buddha was trying to point to and bring about in us. So they said, we're going to go back to relying primarily on the sutras, not on the Abhidharma. So this caused another split in those 18 schools. This is another dialogue that, that strongly resonates today. You will find, at least in uh, Theravadan countries, some teachers and practitioners who strongly favor the Abhidhamma as the ultimate reference. I'll give you an example. I was practicing in Burma a couple of years ago, and I met a teacher there who was explaining the Tripitaka to me. And they said, oh yes, here's the way we understand it. The Vinaya is for sila, ethical conduct. The Suttapitaka is for samadhi, because it teaches us how to meditate. And the Abhidhamma is for panya. It's the liberating wisdom. So they held the Abhidhamma above the Suttapitaka. Other practitioners, I confess to counting myself among them, hold the Suttapitaka as the supreme source of wisdom above the Abhidhamma. And uh, one of my uh, teachers in Thailand, a great, great monk named Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was a wonderful scholar, uh, practitioner, uh, social activist in his way, and teacher, said that his translation for Abhidhamma was not the standard one. Generally, Abhidhamma is translated as high dharma, or sometimes higher dharma. He said his translation for Abhidhamma was too much Dhamma. <laughs> so he was more of a Sautrantika in this current split. So these, these kinds of divisions and discussions go on today. The Abhidhamma is a dazzling intellectual work. I can't imagine that, you know, how it was ever created. I don't think anything like it exists in any other body of literature. But its intellectual dazzle for me, doesn't carry the living spirit of liberation 
the way that the suttas do. Other people see it differently. So also about this same time, 250 BCE, while the Sarvastivadins were splitting off from the Theravadins, a really important movement happened, which is that Asoka uh, sent his son as a missionary to Sri Lanka. His son's name was Mahinda. Asoka sent out lots of missionaries because he, he was a convert. He believed in the Dhamma. He had the money. He sent monks all over the place. He sent monks to Europe to try to plant the flag of the Dharma in Europe. I'll just say, I just heard this in the past week, and I haven't been able to verify it from any other source. But what I read is that some Theravadan monks made their way to Greece, where they were known as Teraputra, which means sons of the Theravada, sons of the elders. And this word, Teraputra, spelled T-H-E-R-A, P-U-T-R-A-E, became the root for the word therapeutic. <laughs> so that according to what I just read, it was the teaching of the Dharma that was the original therapy in ancient Greece. I don't know if this is true, but it sure is interesting. Because now we have discussions about well, is psychotherapy the same as the Dharma or different? And here we have the Dharma perhaps being the original therapy. So the monks didn't really plant in Europe, but they planted in Sri Lanka. So Mahinda established a monastery down there, and it was not too many hundred years after he got there that the, this body of teachings known as the Pali Canon was written down. For 400 years, it was not written down because they didn't really have uh, ways to write and store books at that time. So the technology developed, and the canon came to be written down, I think, on palm leaves. 400 years later. So for 400 years, it was simply memorized. Now, that's not easy because the Sutta Pitaka is about 20 volumes. The Vinaya Pitaka is seven volumes, and the Abhidhamma Pitaka is seven volumes, memorized for 400 years. I don't know how reliable it was. You know how when you play telephone, it goes around three people and there's a new message? I don't know how this worked. And yet there's a, there's a very consistent and, and liberating body of teachings there. At first, I didn't believe that this much material could be memorized. But part of the way it was handled is different sections of the text were handed off to different monasteries and different schools. So each one had responsibility for a piece of the overall canon. And that's how it was saved and passed down. But today in Burma, you can find monks who have memorized the entire Pali canon. Personally, I think they might have been better off meditating, but they can recite to you. You just pick a sutta, a paragraph, and ask them to recite it, and they'll do it. They have examinations where they'll test them on their knowledge. So it's clear that that kind of memory is, is possible because there are people today uh, who are doing it. 
So the Pali Canon was first written down in Sri Lanka about 400 years after the death of the Buddha, puts it in the first century BCE. And the reason it is so significant is that it's the only place where the original schools of Buddhism survived. In India, Buddhism was wiped out about 11th, 12th centuries by Muslim invaders from the West. Buddhism could be wiped out because they collected in monasteries and nunneries and learning centers like Nalanda. Hinduism was not wiped out because it was in every home. It was in the temple on every corner and the shrine in every home. Buddhism was collected and centralized, mostly in monastic communities, and so it could be wiped out, and it was. So all the other original schools of Buddhism were destroyed. Their canons were largely destroyed um, by the 12th century. But the, the invaders had not reached to Sri Lanka, and Sri Lanka continued in an uninterrupted way, the teachings of the Theravadan school. Through the centuries when Buddhism had effectively died in India. That is why there is only one complete canon available today. The Pali Canon, which was first put down in Sri Lanka over 2,000 years ago. All the others were destroyed. There's one other school I can't resist mentioning. There are 18 schools, and I won't bore you with all the names, but there's this one school I, I kind of like. They're called the Pugalavadans. Wouldn't you like to be a member of the Pugalavadans? Pugala means person. So these are the personalists. Their philosophical doctrine was that the self actually did exist to a greater extent than the Buddha had indicated, and that's why they're called Pugala. The person, they said, the person has more reality than the other schools are saying. They said that it was connected with the five aggregates in a way that um, it wasn't the same as the five aggregates, which are all uh, impersonal and subject to impermanence. It wasn't exactly the same as the five aggregates, but it was almost like them, very closely associated. And this had some higher degree of lastingness than the impersonal, impermanent nature of the five aggregates. So the self existed somewhere in between a temporary arising and passing and an ultimate kind of nature. And that was called the Pugala. What it reminded me of when I was thinking about this today was the mere eye. Isn't that a little bit like the sense of the mere eye? So they held it in a more solid way than Rinpoche was talking about, the mere eye. I don't think Rinpoche is a Pugalavadan. <laughs> but this school had a lot of appeal, and you can kind of see why. Isn't it comforting to think we really do have an eye? <laughs> Isn't there a little bit of resentment of the Dhamma for taking away our sense of self? So the Pugalavadans restored it to us. A visitor to India kind of late in the history of, of Buddhism. I think it was 7th or 8th century. There were Chinese pilgrims coming into India in that time. Said that the main early schools that still survived 
were the Theravadins, the Sarvastivadins, the Pugalavadins, and the Mahasangikas. And most of the others were of lesser importance by that time. Now, the Mahasangikas become significant because scholars believe that it is out of their uh, kind of philosophical leanings and some of their attitudes that the Mahayana evolved. So that's what I want to talk about uh, starting tomorrow. The origination of the Mahayana, uh, the evolution of its schools, and then the later development of the Tantras and the Vajrayana. So Rinpoche is spending the first couple of days laying a conceptual framework before we get into meditation. I'm going to do the same thing. This is kind of the framework of the teachings and the links between the traditions. And then as he moves into more meditation teaching, I'll also move into more uh, meditation guidance and uh, pointing in these evening talks. But uh, for tomorrow, also I want to just finish out the evolution of Buddhism in India. Uh, I'm not going to go into China and Japan because that is a whole other subject. But the reason I love the story in India is because you see there the common foundation of Theravada and Tibetan. I feel these two schools have a great affinity. I've benefited greatly from uh, my exposure to the Ther Ther Theravadan teachings as well as the Tibetan teachings. And the nice thing is we can sit down and talk together. Now, if I tried to talk to a Zen master about where the seeds of karma are stored, I think he'd probably just hit me. <laughs> but with someone like Rinpoche, I can ask a question like that and have a kind of logical discussion. And I think the reason for that is that both Theravada and Tibetan Dharma are grounded in very firmly in Indian Buddhism and still connected uh, strongly to that base. So I think we share that kind of common philosophical underpinning and it enables us to uh, have dialogue with each other, for, for me, very comfortably. So I think that's really all I wanted to uh, talk about tonight. You're tired, you've been a very patient audience. I will take a couple of questions or comments if you have any, obviously we could talk about this stuff all night. I'm not going to go long. But if there are a couple of comments or questions, please. Um, I've, I've heard about this distinction between direct and gradual. And I was wondering if you could, what you see that distinction as. The comment is about um, the distinction between direct and gradual. Could you give an example of what you mean by direct? Well, um, I think I've read or heard like adultion is a direct path, whereas Theravadi path is a gradual path. So I don't know what that means. Comment is that the Dzogchen path is said to be a direct path, and the Theravadan path is said to be a gradual path. I've heard it also said within the Tibetan tradition that there's a sutra path within Tibetan Buddhism as well which is considered gradual, and the Dzogchen is considered more direct. It's not a, an area I know very much about, so I think it might be good to ask Rinpoche about it. But I am going to talk tomorrow about 
the birth of the Tantras, of which Dzogchen is, is one practice, and the foundation um, attitude in the Tantras. And it does give a little bit of a, a taste of that direct, but I'll save that for tomorrow. Thanks. Yes? The comment was uh, that Nagarjuna may be claimed by both the Mahayanas and the Theravadins. I agree. I'm going to talk about Nagarjuna tomorrow night. Um, and his, his central work, the Mula Madhyamaka Karika, uh, root verses on the middle way, has almost uh, no uniquely Mahayana vocabulary. Virtually the whole vocabulary is in terms of things that, language that the Buddha himself used. So it fits very well uh, in the Theravadan line of, of understanding. Yes? Question, yeah, the question is about the proper understanding of the Abhidhamma. It's, it's definitely acknowledged that the things that are called the ultimate truths are impermanent and arising and passing. I think what happened was that later, um, some later practitioners made more of the Abhidhamma than was inherent in it. I think there's a way to hold the Abhidhamma model in a wise light where there's no conflict with the suttas in any way. But I think that the, what happened was that later philosophers and practitioners became so fixated on the reality of, for instance, just these 52 mental factors. You know, there are only 52 mental factors in the Abhidhamma view, no more and no less states of mind and other kind of parsing of reality, uh, no, no moment can touch another. Mind moments are all discrete and cannot be, they cannot overlap or contact one another. They're said to be discrete. So it's actually on the basis of those kinds of what I would call rigid views or views too rigidly held that Nagarjuna mounted his counterattack. Nagarjuna's counterattack was basically to people who were taking the Abhidhamma too literally and fixating a view that this was the only way to view reality. And in doing that, they had lost touch with the essentially empty nature of designations. So all the things that the Abhidhamma describes, I think we have to hold as merely descriptions of reality. And when it gets taken too seriously, it's held as constituting reality. So I think that's the critique. Yeah. Okay. 
I'm going to liberate you <laughs> for tonight. We have about half an hour for uh, walking, stretching, and then we'll come back at 9 o'clock for our last sitting of the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.